0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023 Potential savings will vary Discounts not available in all states and situations Hi, I'm Debbie Millman Canva is great for
1: designing visual content for work no matter what industry or department you work in at canva.com, designed for work.
2: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from Designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Peter Ringbaum about his years as a partner in the creative agency FLAT and how he later moved away from design into filmmaking. Obviously, like the visual end of, of filmmaking is incredibly inf- important to me. In some ways, I think that's where I start. It has to be something that grabs me visually, and I tend to lead with that. Here's Debbie Melman.
1: Petteringbaum went to South Africa with one camera and a vague idea of what he was going to film. He quickly realized that he needed to tell the story of South African artists... Twenty years after the end of apartheid, it would become his latest documentary, Shield and Spear. Documentary film is not Peter Ringbom's only creative pursuit. He's also a designer, an art director, and has worked with clients as diverse as the Museum of Modern Art and ESPN. He is also the creative advisor for the design and innovation firm Open Box. He joins me now at the School of Visual Arts in New York City to talk about his career and his recent documentaries. Petter, welcome to Design Matters.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: So, Petter, you were born in Sweden, mm-hmm. but moved to the West Coast in 1994. Right. Why?
2: Because I met a girl.
1: Really? Oh, okay. So you left your whole family in Sweden and moved, well, moved to the West Coast. I was 20.
2: You know, th- these things are easy to do when you're, you're 20. And, and in love. <laughs> Oddly, it didn't last. I mean, who would have thought? Who would have
1: thought? Especially
2: so young and vibrant <laughs> yeah. and full
1: of optimism.
2: I mean, the the other part of it was that I was going to uh, design school. So I started out on the West Coast at a school and then lasted for about a year. And then I moved to the East Coast. What school were you at at that point? Academy of Art. Oh so okay was there for and then one you year. Can,
1: you transferred to Cooper Union. That's right. And what made you decide to do that aside from the fact that it's a school that at
2: that time you could go to for free? I read a book about Milton Glaser. That was the starting point for it. I wasn't happy in San Francisco for many reasons. I wasn't happy with the school and I wasn't happy with the city and it was just not for me at that point. So I read this book about Milton Glaser and I really loved his work and it said there, oh, But Milton Glacier went to Cooper Union and I had no idea what that meant except for it also said that it was a free school. So I figured that's perfect because that's what I need.
1: And so you moved and went to Cooper Union from nineteen ninety six to nineteen ninety nine. Right. And in doing my research on your history, I realized that you started flat your design firm with your partner Saya Carson. In 2000?
2: Well, I didn't start. They started it. I joined a couple of years after they started it.
1: So you went straight from school to a partner in a
2: design no, firm? No, it took about a year of being an employee, and then I became a
1: uh, partner. Oh, a year, a whole year. You had to suffer through employment <laughs> for an entire year before you were made a partner. Right.
2: Well, being a partner is not necessarily always better than being an, a, an employee.
1: But it's certainly more prestigious. Uh,
2: yes, so. I guess so.
1: So how did you meet Sian? how did you get to FLAT?
2: I met Cy through this designer Barbara Glauber, who was a teacher of mine at at Cooper, who I loved. And she played matchmaker. She she knew them and thought that I would be a good addition to their company. At that point, they were not a visual design company. They They were were,
1: primarily interactive, Yeah, and
2: they did uh, mostly, you know, um, information architecture for companies. And it didn't really have a visual portfolio. So I came in and built out their, their visual side and then joined as a partner.
1: A year later. Yeah. And then you stayed for 12 years. Right. Now, Flatt's portfolio includes commercial, artistic, entertainment, educational, political engagements, some of the work that I think they're most noted for while you were there, for the 12 years you were there, were some of the work for the ING New York City Marathon, Mm -hmm. Isaac Mizrahi's online presence. And and in terms of Isaac's website, FLAT, I believe, focused on two areas, an editorial space that worked hand-in-hand with a print publication, a store that sold online merchandise, but it also served as a centralizing presence for all of Isaac's activities, from his couture line to his Target brand, from his magazine to his television show. So what was it like working with a, a fashion celebrity?
2: Well, I mean, just to be clear, the, the print part was actually done by Peter Buchanan Smith, and he's oh, the one okay. who brought yes. us in. And okay. you know, he's he's a, f- a friend from a while long back. Um, and we'll talk about it? Peter in a moment because <laughs> sure. he's
1: in one of your films.
2: Right. That's true. How was it like working with Isaac Miserayi? Uh, interesting he's quite an entertaining character
1: interesting is never a good word <laughs> <laughs> i happen to I'm love isaac I'm, I'm and i've known him for about 30 years yeah, Believe it yeah, yeah, or not yeah. but just the word interesting as a sort of cultural phenomenon is never a good thing to say about well, someone
2: it's better than boring that's <laughs>
1: true that's true just <laughs> and marginally. he's certainly not a boring <laughs> that's true. person absolutely absolutely, not a
2: boring client at all um, no he's he was very entertaining he 's great incredibly passionate incredibly design minded and and smart also incredibly challenging
1: um, you also did work for the Red Cross, and I know that the Red Cross approached flat to represent their response to nine eleven mm-hmm. and you based your approach on a standard used extensively for the profit world, which was the annual report. Mm-hmm. And the website and the printed publication was the first of its kind for the organization and has since become a model for reporting on other large scale relief efforts. Mm-hmm. And it was widely noted that you avoided depicting the drama of the event and the heroism of its participants. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about why you chose that particular approach.
2: Because we you know the the, the report itself is a mix of stories and a lot of numbers and facts. What we wanted to do is to try to get to the intimacy of of the people who's, who survived and were part of the relief effort, but also the people, who, the families of, of, of victims, etc. And we did that through artifacts. So the Red Cross had an extensive collection of, of objects that they had collected and that people had given them and people sent in from all over the world. And they were amazing. You know, everything from, you know, the a, a charred American flag to little stuffed animals to hazmat suits from, that were used in the relief effort, helmets, etc. So we let those objects tell the story. Because at that point, we had seen the images so many times. And it was important just for us to try to stay away from that and use a different way in, you know, to tell that story.
1: So you walked away from Flat, or you left Flat in 2012. I believe it was after you won a Webby Award nomination for a documentary video that you created for Five Franklin Place. What made you decide to leave and ultimately completely change your career path?
2: It was actually a change that started long before that. I have started making small film Projects on the side, sometimes bringing them in as part of the flat, you know little fashion videos and commercial work, music videos, etc, sometimes just by myself, you know narrative shorts. I felt like I was actually working towards making that shift over many years in two thousand and eleven. I got a call from this musician named John Forte, and I knew who he was because I used to be a fan of the of the Fujis, or I guess I still am. So I was extremely surprised that he would call me, but he um, asked... How did he,
1: how did he even know
2: about you? He had seen a fashion video I did for this jewelry brand and liked it. And he asked me if I wanted to come to Russia to document a tour he was making, which I thought was incredibly interesting and weird. <laughs> we 'll talk about this yeah, quite th- out later in yeah, a few minutes but this is how this, how this is actually why why I left at that time because so i, I left to go to Russia in two thousand and eleven took a leave of absence from flat and tried to come back after I returned from russia and you know worked part time while finishing my film and it it just didn 't work i just couldn 't do both of the things, and I, so I had to make a choice it just wasn 't realistic for me to run a design firm while also making feature-length documentaries just didn't hold up. And it was also not really fair to my partners, to be honest. So that's why I left.
1: And did you always know that you'd ultimately be successful at pursuing film? Were you worried? Were you scared? Were you? Did you feel insecure? <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: um, I mean, it's really remarkable to give up a partnership in a design firm that's really hot, really well-known, doing great work, and go off and decide to do something that you have to sort of make a whole new name for yourself right. doing.
2: I was worried, yes. Not necessarily about my ability, but yes, about my, well, my, about money, really, about supporting myself and, what, and my family. But it wasn't hard because I felt like my life had flathead run its course. It was time to move on.
1: Now, was it something that you felt in your heart? Mm-hmm. Was it? It was. So yeah. it wasn't something specific. It was just something that you sensed about the direction of your life.
2: Yeah, it was an important thing to do, and I think age is part of this. I felt like if if I was going to make that shift, it would have to be at that point or now, essentially. You know, now or 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 never. In some ways, I mean, I don't know if that's true or not. People can change course in, in their lives at any time, really, and I I, I like to think that way, but. Maybe some like early, really—I <laughs> wouldn't say it's a midlife crisis, but it was. I, I assessed my life from a personal level and a professional level, what have you, and I felt deep in my heart that I had to try to do something else to make myself more excited and happy, and to kind of rediscover a passion for something that I felt like I had lost along the way. You
1: worked on a conceptual film with Carl Handel, Mm -hmm. and this was work that was based upon an eponymous series of conceptual graphite drawings that he did beginning in 2007 that you then turned into a film that you called Questions for My Father. This was the last of the pieces of yours that I watched Mm -hmm. in doing my research on you to prepare for the show today, and in many ways it was the most moving to me because it felt so completely universal in that these questions for the fathers, and I'll explain the film in a moment, felt like questions anybody could ask anyone at any time. And I'm wondering if those questions in some way inspired you to rethink the course of your life at that time.
2: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, the, the reason why that project came about was I, I discovered a painting by Carl that affected me deeply. And I think that had to do with where I was in my life at the time. And I I was becoming maybe a little late in my life, but I was becoming a man, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I was thinking about all of these things. of like what does it mean really to be a man? And what does it mean to be a dad? and 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 I think a lot of men in their thirties these days ponder these things right so th- that pain affected me deeply and i and I reached out to Carl and we decided to do this project together, and we've now since become really great friends and, and and continue to work on on things but yes it 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 was a timely project
1: as I was watching all of your movies all of as many as I could, your music videos, your branded films. And because this was the last piece of yours that I I saw, suddenly everything clicked and I thought... Oh, my God, this was the inspiration to change his whole life. <laughs> but the the film has been described as a document of sorts of the inquiries, the doubts and reservations of a group of 16 men mm-hmm. in the 30s and 40s, including you. You are mm-hmm. in it as well. Each man makes several appearances. They look directly into the camera and ask a short question that, as we continue to watch the film, we realize is intended for the speaker's father. Mm-hmm. I'd like to read some of the questions. <laughs> so here goes. Did you ever lose faith in yourself? Do you like yourself? Did you know I was scared of you? Do you ever wish your life turned out differently? Why don't I believe in your sacrifice? Did you foresee my marriage failing? Why did my mom divorce you? Why are you afraid of being alone? How did you find out you were HIV positive? Are you afraid of dying? Were you scared the day I was born? Was I a mistake? Do you ever wish you had a different life? Why did you wear a tux to my playoff game? Why do you dot your eyes with a circle? Why don't you take risks? What did you do at work all day? How does it feel knowing I was raised by another man? How many brothers and sisters do I have? Do you miss having a family? Do you ever think about getting in touch with me? Do you search my name on the internet? What do you want to know about me? What things can I tell you? Are you still alive? Hmm. Amazing, right? These right. questions are amazing. Were these questions that the men mm-hmm. wrote themselves and you edited and chose which ones they wanted to ask, or was it just free reign, they could say whatever they wanted?
2: We asked our friends to submit questions, and then we edited, we, you know, we recorded basically all the questions that they had and then edited the ones we felt like told the story in the best way.
1: It's just an extraordinary, and the the photography, the cinematography is absolutely gorgeous, the close-ups, the Mm -hmm. eye contact that you have with each man. What did you learn about yourself making this film?
2: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the thing about the questions is that you learn something about the fathers, but you also learn a lot about the sons, the people asking the questions. You know, the things that they're actually interested in tell the story of them, Right. So the, the things that I were interested in were things that I was thinking about, about myself, essentially. And the things that I probably didn't like about myself that I could see in my dad, you know. It, it, <laughs> oh,
1: hell yeah. <laughs> right? You don't have so, to be a guy to feel that yeah, way. <laughs> I mean, it's, in,
2: in some ways, it's like it's like a, a psychological exercise or something, you know, and I was it was it was a tricky project to do. And it was a very tricky thing to show to my dad because he saw it. He came to New York when we had it installed at a gallery in Chelsea and I, he saw it
1: what did he say? I was actually
2: incredibly proud of him because I, th- I was nervous. I thought, you know, because there are some hard questions in there. But he loved it. I mean, it helps that he is an artist. So he could see it from, I think, from an artist's point of view. But I was nervous for no reason, as it turns out. Even the, the things that I thought were a little sensitive, it didn't bother him at all.
1: Yeah, I only ask the um, R-rated questions. There are some X-rated questions, sure. too. yeah. You have done quite a number of other film projects. You've shot a number of music videos. You've created a number of branded films. I want to talk a little bit about your documentaries. Mm -hmm. I want to talk first about your first feature film. The documentary, The Russian Winter, which, Mm -hmm. as you just recently told us, was motivated by the call from John Forte. John Forte is the ex-Fuji producer and the member of OK Player for Life. His story has the sort of grandeur of of being documentary-worthy. For some context, John Forte grew up fatherless and poor in Brownsville, Brooklyn. He got a full music scholarship to Phillips Exeter, one of the best prep schools in the country. At 21 years old, he received a Grammy nomination for his work on the Fuji's album, The Score, and then embarked on a critically acclaimed solo career. In 2000... He was arrested at Newark Airport for carrying $1.4 million worth of liquid cocaine. He was then sentenced to a mandatory 14 years in prison. He served seven and then had his sentence commuted by in 2008 by George W. Bush at the urging of a pair of very unlikely supporters, mm-hmm. uh, the singer Carly Simon and the Republican Utah Senator Orrin Hatch. Right. The documentary has n- pretty much nothing to do with the Fujis, Carly Simon, or Growing Up Poor in Brooklyn, although all are touched upon. It really centers around a nine-week musical journey that Forte took across Russia in 2011. This is a trip that he had to obtain special permission from his parole officer for. What made him decide to trust you mm-hmm. to do a documentary about his experience, having never made a feature documentary before?
2: Yeah, big question, <laughs> right?
1: Question. <laughs> he just liked you. Well,
2: right? well, what? It wasn't. A, it was. A, it was a process because he originally. I don't think he thought of it being a documentary about him. You know, he thought, oh, I'm going to make this tour, so you go, you come along, you document a tour, and it'll be like a musical journey, like you know, um, like Madonna's like The
1: Girlie Show or Truth or Dare. Right. Or, exactly. Yeah.
2: A tour diary. That's exactly. what he imagined, and he had seen you know these these shorter pieces that that I made that he really liked and he really liked the aesthetic he knew that it would be a beautiful piece about you know his his travel through Russia and that was I think as far as he had planned it of course I wanted to make something that was that went a little deeper than that it became really a film about him but we are traveling through Russia as we are getting to know who he is and you really
1: see him you don't hold back very much and I was impressed by his allowing you to show him at his best and maybe his most arrogant or his worst, depending on right. you know how you want to view yeah. arrogance. I'm,
2: I'm I'm glad that he did that. I mean, it, part of that is shooting all the time. So we you know we were in Russia for two and a half months and we were shooting every day. Eventually, the filters go away and you just let it all hang out. And that's what happened. And most of the stuff that really had that drama to it happened towards the end of this trip because at that point, the barriers had come down and people were just who they were.
1: I was really struck by watching John Forte on this tour of seeing him treated as a celebrity, of being so admired by so many people that wanted to have his picture taken and go to his shows and so on and so forth. But there are a couple of lines in the movie that are just spectacular, in their sort of vivid starkness, I guess. Um, And he says about his prison experience, every week something is being taken away from you when you're in prison. Mm -hmm. Did you learn something about the notion of freedom or what it was like to be in jail and then suddenly free?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think at that time, John was still getting used to being free. He was still getting used to operating in society. He was away from I mean, seven years is a long time to be away. And he went away really young. And one thing he says, and I don't know if this is in the film or not, but one thing he says is that you, you get frozen in prison, like t- time stands still. So he went in as a young 20 something, 21, 22, right. something like that. And he came yeah. out as a 20, young 20 something, not in age, but in right. his life experience, really. Like you can read books, right? So he's pretty, he's an intellectual fellow and he's read a lot and he read a lot in prison. But when you're not interacting with real life for seven years, you 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 that that does something to your personality. But and we, I think that, that when we when we made that film, he had just been out of prison for about a year or so, and he's still like navigating, you know, how to how to operate with, with freedom, how to trust people again, and how to be. And seen. That was tricky. Yeah, I mean,
1: not only are you being seen, right. but you're being filmed. Yeah. It's a beautiful movie. Um, the movie debuted at the Tribeca Film Festival. How did you make that happen? How do you get your first feature film to be debuted at the Tribeca Film Festival? I don't know.
2: I did. <laughs> it's a lottery, really, but it, the festival circuit. But I'm, we were very happy to get to premiere it there. Um, I guess they liked the film.
1: So that paved the way for your next film, mm-hmm. a film called Shield and Spirit, your most recent film. Can you describe the documentary for our listeners?
2: hmm well, it's a portrait of a group of artists, contemporary artists and musicians working in South Africa 20 years after the end of apartheid. And through them, we're painting a picture of what's going on in the country now.
1: I read when you were growing up, your parents were very active in the anti-apartheid movement. Mm-hmm. What was that like for you?
2: I don't want to overstate that because they were active in, that, in, in the same way that a lot of Swedes were, meaning they wore the the, the buttons and they went into the, in the protests and what have you. They didn't put their lives on the line for the struggle, so I don't want to overstate it. But I remember, you know, going to these protests with them for actually for a lot of protests. But that was like the the era, you know, the 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 70s in Sweden. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) very much so. But the thing with the the apartheid struggle in Sweden in general was actually outside of Africa, the continent. I think the Scandinavian countries were maybe the ones that were the the most involved in in the struggle, that's recognized in South Africa as well. Like I went to Cape Town to this archive of protest art from the apartheid era, and there, this whole they had this whole section with things from Scandinavia, these stickers that I like recognize. Oh, this is like what my mom wore on her her shirt, or whatever. Subconsciously, I think that's why I ended up making this film. Like that, that was something that was lingering in me, kind of figuring out what happened after 1994 when everyone. Said that you know now South Africa is free Nelson Mandela is the president let everything you know everything is great so we, we can all live happily ever after and that was the story that was told again and again and again but I really you know and I was curious not, yeah it's no not that's at all. not really how it is so I was curious to explore that on a personal level that was just interesting to me and I and I felt like it could be a story that other people would find interesting
1: I was struck by the notion that though shield and spear. And the Russian Winter are really different films. Mm-hmm. They both deal with artists in really uniquely political, somewhat extreme circumstances. Right. Was that intentional?
2: I think I'm drawn to that. <laughs> so yeah, I think that's intentional. Like I said, my dad was an artist. I I've I lived my whole. I feel like I lived my whole life in, in, in the art world in some way or another. But I always find it kind of frustrating that it. It's rare that it gets out of the box, you know, the white box, the gallery space, the art museum space, what have you. I'm really interested in those stories where it, where it affects life, you know, on a social political level. And in South Africa, it does. There is a direct connection between art and politics in a way that probably doesn't happen in this country. One of the main thorough line of the film is the story around this painting called The Spear, you know, which where we get By our Brett title. Yeah. Right. And that painting had an immediate effect on social political life in South Africa. You know, it, it's a caricature. It's not not the m- most amazing painting ever. You know, no, it's a caric- it isn't. No. It's a caricature of the president with his, you know, his... Genitalia hanging yeah, out of his pants. Exactly. <laughs> it's a one-liner, you know.
1: It is. It is a one-liner.
2: But it led to these... Credible protests and vandalism and death threats and eventually to a lawsuit and Brad having to go into hiding and etc. and it led to a big debate around uh, race. And And freedom freedom of of expression, expression. yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, it feels like a film about freedom of expression at its heart. Sure. And you start the film with some context here. You state that South Africa has one of the most progressive constitutions in the world. Mm -hmm. Its Bill of Rights includes the rights to human dignity, education, housing and freedom of expression. Yet in 2012, President Zuma and the ANC sued two different artists for work that they deemed defensive. Yeah. One of those artists was Brett Murray who right. painted the caricature mm-hmm. uh, that we were just talking about. So there were two real parallel stories happening. One mm-hmm. is about Brett Murray and and the whole sort of situation that occurs in South right. Africa and what happens with the media. And then the other track of this documentary of all the musicians right. and all of the political activists that are trying to communicate what is happening in South Africa, Mm -hmm. how did they feel about Brett Murray's work and the protests that were going on? Because Mm -hmm. you sort of weave in and out of the story that's happening while you're there and then the musicians and their lives and what they're trying to achieve.
2: I mean, specifically about the painting?
1: Yeah, did they feel like it was, like the situation was overblown or that it was... It varies, I mean... But that his work wasn't any good or was very good. I'm just curious as to what they thought.
2: A lot of the artists that I met kind of didn't think much of the painting itself a, a universal thing I, I, I encountered was a strong belief in his right to make that painting there were also some artists that that felt like it was offensive and that he was you know that it came from a, a racist place so it's a mix but i would say most of them actually fell on the side of yeah not that great with painting but he should be allowed to paint that painting without risking the life of himself or his family which is a bit fair assessment, I would say.
1: mil Thando Bongela talks about something that she refers to in the film as nouveau African confidence. Mm-hmm. She talks about the physical and psychological space to be the people we were born to be. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you have any insight into what that means.
2: I think she means that hundreds of years of oppression has affected, you know, generations of, of South Africans in the way that they suppressed so much of their creativity, of their political life, of their personal life, etc., that they were not fully human during the struggle. But how couldn't you be? I mean, if you have a... Well, that kind that of, oppressed, right. yeah. Now, with South Africa being a free country, I think what she's saying is that we finally have the opportunity to be fully human to be everything that we want to be and to you know engage on an equal level
1: you feature Zanella Muholi mm-hmm. prominently in the documentary she is a black lesbian photographer the ex minister of culture in South Africa Lulu Zingwana refused to open a show with Zanella's work calling it immoral offensive and going against nation building mm-hmm. And she talks about how photography is about
2: politics.
1: Can you talk about the experience of working with her a bit?
2: She's a she's a tough cookie.
1: Yes, <laughs> compelling, though, really. Yeah, compelling. she's
2: great. She's great on camera, off camera. Not the easiest person to be around, to, to be around. <laughs> I understand that too, though. I mean, it's a tricky thing in general, being who I am and making this film in that country. You know, I'm a you a don't white see man. me, but I'm a <laughs> white middle-aged man. I'm heterosexual, and I come from a privileged place. I mean, my background was not privileged, but... Comparatively you know, speaking, yeah. yes. So there is a level of mistrust that for some people is immediate. And you have to... And it's my responsibility to kind of work to get past that. And with Sinella, it took a little time. But, you know, eventually, I think we, we met as fellow... You know, creative types, really. I mean, I don't call myself an artist at all, but, you know, we, we met as people who are essentially doing similar things and, and who respect each other's work. The only reason why she ag- agreed to be in the film is because she understood that I, you know, that I've done some work before and she liked it. and
1: Wanted to get she, her message out. Right.
2: But she usually says no to everyone. So, was, I mean, I think part of it is just that she felt like I would do a decent job at it.
1: Well, there are some really important statistics that she cites that you also feature prominently, and that is that South Africa has the highest reported incidence of rape in the world. Mm-hmm. That according to statistics, 20 South American women will be raped in the time it would take for somebody to watch Shield and Spear. Right. Um, and then when the ANC files the lawsuit against the Goodman Gallery... Brett Murray and the city press demanding to have the painting removed from the gallery and the website uh, of the newspaper. They are threatened with uh, being stoned, lots of death threats, Mm -hmm. something called being necklaced. Their phones were monitored and tapped. They still don't even know if the taps were ever taken off. Murray ended up having to take refuge at a friend's house far away from where the gallery was. Despite multiple requests, the ANC never granted you an interview. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, there is no point of view from the government other than it being seen as something that needed to be taken down and shut away. Right. Sadly. Um, Sadly. Mm -hmm. um, Do you feel that the documentary has helped with the notion of freedom of expression in South Africa?
2: I think it's part of a bigger debate. I think that the ANC... Learned their lesson with the spear, and I don't think that they will do. They will. They won't act the same way again. You know, for our film, for example, we 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 screened it at Durban Film Festival a couple of months ago, and any film that screens there has to go through the the government sensory board. So they, I know that they've seen it. Someone part of the of the of the government has seen the film and decided to just you know let it pass, which was probably a, a smart move from them. You know, it's better to ignore than to make a fuss, because I would just bring more attention to the film. But in in terms of the freedom of expression issue, I think it's part of a a debate that the country is having and has had since the the Spear incident. Yeah, And I think it's actually in a better place now than it was two years ago when that happened.
1: So, Petter, one of the things that struck me throughout watching all of your films and also looking at your earlier design work mm-hmm. is how painterly everything is. Mm. Everything is very vivid. Everything is very beautiful and lush. Mm-hmm. Um, is that something that you feel you've taken from your earlier design career?
2: Mm. Yeah, that's it's an interesting question. It's hard to know where where things come from, isn't it? Obviously, like the visual end of of filmmaking is incredibly important to me. And in some ways, I think that's where I start. It has to be something that grabs me visually. And I tend to lead with that. And that's just where I come from. You know, that's my background and that's where I'm comfortable. So I let that lead the way in the films. It's definitely related to the design work. I mean, it all kind of blends together in some ways.
1: I want to close the show today with a quote that you include in and Spear from Desmond Tutu. The price of freedom is eternal vigilance. And I think that's so important to remember. Thank you for being on the show today, Petter. Thanks for having me. You can find out more about Petter Ringbaum on his website, petteringbaum.com. That's Petter with two T's. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we could make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.